Podconduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Episode 7, The Doll's House. I'm joined by two eyeballless co-hosts, Ashley. Salutations. And Sean. Hey, everybody. I just love how during the uh, our opening music that all of us are just kind of sitting here and like bopping around the whole time. It is I a bop. everyone could see that. Yeah. Sometimes you get a banger. Sometimes you get a bopper. It's always a good thing. Indeed. <laughs> so on each TV deep dive, we will be working our way through four sections. First, summarize that week's episode and then provide our hot takes. Then we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. Then we'll wrap up by offering our final thoughts. Ben, over to you for the summary. All right, so now that Dream has collected Mask, Sand Pouch, and Ruby, we got to figure out what's he supposed to do next? If you remember, he was quite moody in our last episode as he was like, my adventure is over. What should I do? Well, adventure is coming to (laughs) smack him in the face in the name of Rose Walker, who's a dream vortex. What's a dream vortex? We don't know, but it pulls everything towards itself and it might be able to destroy all humanity. So yeah, we got that going for us. So after being introduced to Rose and her younger brother, Jed, Uh, We are then cut over and meet a new family member in the form of Despair, who is Desire's twin. And we see that they were the ones who, in fact, had encouraged the imprisonment of Dream and are excited that they can try another scheme to, it seems like, just kind of pick on their old arrogant brother. It doesn't really feel like yeah, it just kind of feels like they're family and they're just kind of like picking on each other. Um, so with that, uh, we are sent back into the world of the waking and Rosewalk is being um, summoned or asked to come over to England uh, to do a interview to talk about her mother. But it was all a farce. And really, she is being introduced to Unity Kincaid who is her great-grandmother and had suffered a bout of encephalitis lethargica when Dream was captured. And during that time, she was impregnated and she gave birth to a baby who was Rose's grandmother and so on and so forth. Birds and the bees, yada, yada, we get Rose. So after Rose meets with Unity, she hires Rose to find Jed. Rose has been looking for both employment and her brother seemingly for quite a while. And so here we are with a solution that both pays her to look for her brother, which is an excellent way for her to find a job. At the same time, we also see that something is going on with these collectors or serial killers who are having a conference. Everybody has conferences. Why shouldn't they? And they're dealing with one of the toughest issues, which is booking a keynote speaker and trying to pay as little amount as possible because that's what we do in the events world. Fortunately, they are able to 
get the attention of the Corinthian by removing the eyeballs from three victims. One we saw for five seconds. The other ones were murdered off screen and we have no idea who they were or what happened to them. So we are left with eyeless victims that we will never know. Back in the dreaming, we see that Matthew is going to be spying on Rose Walker as Dream does not want to leave the dreaming because he's boogied a couple times and things have not gone well every time that he's left. So Rose and her friend Lida head down to Florida where they're going to start searching for Jed. The last thing we see is a 12-year-old Jed running down the street, escaping some terror that we learn is his adopted adoptive father, Barn, or Barnard, or something. I didn't really catch it. I know that's my job, but I'm sorry. I just missed what his actual name was. Barnaby. There we go. Well, Barnaby doesn't look like a good dude because he puts his adopted son in the trunk of the car to drive him home and then pumps a shotgun, which is never a great thing. That's our summary. With that, we're going to head over to a quick ad break. We'll be right back. All right, so we have a brand new cast of characters. We're in a lot of different places in this episode. But as always, we start with hot takes. Ashley? Where are you feeling the heat from? Whew, okay, so I don't know how y'all felt about this episode, but for me, this was like drinking from a fire hose that was shooting out like the world's best champagne. Mm. It was going so quickly, but I was enjoying all mm. of it. And uh, and I just really, this is probably one of my favorite episodes. I know it was a lot of introductions and such, but I just because of the way they're having to adapt the material to cover a lot of ground, I thought they did that really well in a balanced way. And I finally got the delivery from Mason Alexander Park that I was looking mm. for from Desire. That scene work between them and Donna Preston, I thought was excellent. And I was eating that up. I was, I felt like I was, we were finally past the mustache twirly villain and the, oh, this is a family drama you just really hate your older brother type uh, drama. And that was really enjoyable to watch them interact with one another and get some build from that. Uh, I love that we have an introduction to Rose and Jed. That whole dynamic did, I, this is probably going to be a theme for me on this podcast, but it did make me tear up. Mm -hmm. Anytime there's any sort of really devastating sort of family separation, specifically a young child in peril in some way, it always makes me tense up. So I'm looking, I'm interested to see how that develops further in the show. The last question I have though is who or what the crap is Galt? Mm. That was that that was new to I me. I think that's a show creation. That's new to everyone. Yeah. Okay. That is a show okay. creation I from what I know. Did I miss something? Okay. Okay, is that our like first total show Invention, like character-wise, ah, I, I think it might. Yeah, be. I mean, they've definitely okay. played around with some characters and moved some characters around. But yeah, I think this is our first mm -hmm. outside the scope character, and I like it. I never liked in the comics just that they were just kind of the parents. I like that we're gonna get <laughs> some some reasoning behind that. I don't. I, sorry, that might be foreshadowing, but that was my take. Is that the dad is definitely Galt, right? I mean, that's I'll, <laughs> that was my take. Yeah, I don't oh, know. Oh, you think? Sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry for just jumping in like that. But yes, that, that is what I think. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. 
Huh. Mm, I've stumped my co-host. See, I'm, I'm working. We're both just processing mm-hmm. that now. It, there's just a lot to, there is a lot to process, but I think that's why I enjoyed mm-hmm. this episode so much because there was a lot to sit back. It, there was nothing that I was like, I know exactly where this is going. I've read it a thousand mm. times. There was a lot for me to think about how they were condensing the material to suit the needs of the overall show narrative. And it felt fresh and fun for me. The, the moment where Matthew is flying out of the dreaming and into the waking world through that fresco is one of the best transitions I've ever seen on television. Oh, I absolutely yeah, that was great. loved that. Like that is, that is a bird flying scene that does not immediately transport me to courts. <laughs> and I was really grateful for it. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Sean, how about you? What's your hot take this week? All right. Well, uh, a few quick things I want to cover. The first is that as a comic book, Sandman was always sort of unique in that it wasn't afraid to explore gay themes, to have trans ideas and characters and things like that. And that that was a, a, a really special thing and a really necessary thing in the medium. But I feel like the show is even more so. Like The show is like straight up a queer show, mm. you know, which... Which is, and there's a number of those on the air, but I feel like in the fantasy space, there's not really as much, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's weird because it makes so much sense for a genre that deals so much with, you know, ideas of of transformation and identity and things like that, right? It just, it's a a welcome thing to see. Um, I also just want to shout out like all the beloved character actors that were used in this episode. I mean, it's so great, like... Uh, John Cameron Mitchell as Hal, you know, from the uh, creator and star of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Um, you've got Stephen Fry, beloved English humorist Stephen Fry, right, as uh, Gilbert. And then, I mean, maybe my, uh, you know, my favorite of the episode, Mark Hamill as Merv. <laughs> and that was just, that was amazing. Um, so it's really cool that all these folks are in one show together and they really all do an amazing job at kind of bringing out, bringing those characters to life. Now onto the bad news for, for me, I, I gotta say that there was something that felt like off in this episode to me. And I've been trying to kind of think about what it was and it might be honestly, maybe an over-reliance on the source material to me. And on Neil Gaiman's dialogue in particular. Mm. And this might seem like a little bit hypocritical after like my praise of the last episode uh, for those same reasons. But I think there's, you know, there's some really perfect, important moments in Sandman that you want to hew really close to the source material. And then there's some that just aren't and could probably be improved by interpreting the material differently. Like, I don't think anyone was on the edge of their seat uh, you know, waiting for the lawyer to remind them that his name is Holdaway and not Holdawell. Um, <laughs> or that Fiddler's Green is Bulbasaur of his own dominion or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if they just maybe loosened up a bit and, and gave us moments that helped us to get to know these new characters as people and gave us like a little less fidelity to the beats of the comic, I would have enjoyed the episode more, you know? And there were just some that I thought, maybe didn't translate that well and struck me as like a little silly or hard to swallow. And I'm thinking of like the serial killers, like laying all these eyeballs out on a table in the diner, like that just read a bit as silly to me or the uh, kind of, you know, Rose fighting off those very cartoonish muggers who are just like lurking in an alley. 
I mean, it, it works in comics because in comics, every alley has a mugger waiting in it and all of them get beat up. Um, Batman's parents notwithstanding, but in real life <laughs> too soon, <laughs> it's just, I don't know, like a mugging, an attempted mugging is like a traumatic event. It Like it is. And I just don't know that it really conveyed any of that um, feeling. So I think overall what bothered me here is that the episode was so enraptured by its own mythology that I feel like it forgot a little bit of its humanity. All right. I'm yeah. sure we'll explore that uh, quite a bit more in this scene-by-scene scene breakdown. Um, from, from my hot take this week, um, I there was one piece of the show that I have continually enjoyed the most, and that is their depiction of the dream tower, dream palace, I just think what they do with that in the realism blended with surrealism that you get. And I really loved when they had kind of the Rose Walker in like twinkling diamonds kind of above them. Yeah. You oh, know? yeah. And uh, I thought the, yeah, I mean, just, you know, having Merv there finally, you know, after seeing him in the first episode and like seeing how he like talked and moved his mouth and, being in Lucien's, you know, library. Um, and I, I just like that they showed that this is a, you know, this is like a, it's like, it's a place of work. Like work, it work happens here. You know, these are, this is um, uh, dream and the inhabitants of the dreaming have to do things in order for the dreaming to, to work. And I, and I like that they continually reinforce that. Uh, by the structure that they've laid out for us in the dreaming. Personal detail, Ben is really into project management. And so, like, the fact that he got to see a little of, uh, <laughs> you know, Lucian and Merv and Matthew doing a little, working on some projects, I think was a big uh, a big plus true. in your book. I am, I am taking a project <laughs> management theory course right now. So. <laughs> Say, character to host comparison, who's Lucian? Who's Merv? Who's Matthew? Uh, why don't you hit us up on our Twitter and let us know what you think, everybody? Let us know, yeah. All right. So with those hot takes out of the way and uh, warming up the rest of this episode, we're going to move into our scene-by-scene scene breakdown. So we discussed this a bit ahead of time, but just a peek behind the curtains. Uh, we decided to break this down a little bit more than we had been. Um, we had let you know that we had reduced these uh, quite a bit um, because... At that point, the action was really flowing. It was obvious what was happening. But with so many new characters, we did want to have time to kind of talk to everybody. So the uh, while we have more segments, they will be a little shorter uh, than what they normally are. So we'll still be at kind of our normal time. Scene one. We're introduced to Rose and Jude Walker six years in the past when Rose, as a teenager, is forced to leave her younger brother to head north. Next, we hear Desire and their twin, Despair, discussing a new plan to bring down Dream using a Dream Vortex. We then jump ahead to present day and see that Rose Walker and her friend Lyda Hall are going to England for not totally clear reasons. Ashley. Like I said, this dynamic between Desire and Despair is the sort of endless conflict that I've been waiting for the entire series. And I know we had to like work to get there, but I, I felt so rewarded 
for my patience mm. with this scene, with this exchange. I thought it was really well acted. I wasn't sure how I would feel about despair once she was introduced, but even the moment she uses her her ring on her own cheek in excitement over what they were about to do, I just cringed inwardly, but I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly mm. the reaction I, I should get out of this, even though there's no blood. That It was like weird. Did, did you see like dust or something? Mm-hmm. It was just so, yeah. Yeah, it, was it was gruesome, it was but in the most um, unexpected way possible, uh, just their, their physical work with the characters and the vocal delivery, everything felt believable. It didn't feel like they were playing up caricatures. It felt like they actually were embodying these concepts fully. And it was totally believable to me. Mm. Uh, the way, the way again, Mason Alexander Park just choose the scenery yeah, yeah. is absolutely delightful. And I, yeah, I was just entirely enchanted by this. I could I could have gone another hour of just them doing stuff to people, <laughs> and I think I would have been really entertained. So, just um, just really really thrilling to watch. I thought that the transitions between the Rose and Jude Walker or um, Jed Walker con or not conflict, but family drama in itself as well, and then transitioning six years later mm. was an interesting take. I think people who aren't familiar with the comics might need some reorienting when you jump ahead and you're like, wait, where's Jed and what's happening? They're getting a detective. I think that was kind of a lot. Uh, but I do like that the writers aren't treating the audience like they're stupid. Mm. Um, mm. I, 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 do, I like that there wasn't a lot of hand-holding, honestly. Do we need a flashback after two minutes of not being with those characters to let us know who those characters were that we just got introduced to? Like, I'm, you know, they use the same <laughs> right. actress, so, like, we're good. Like, we, we get it. There's... Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's just, when you're then suddenly like, wait, where's her mom? Yeah. Where's Jed? What's happening? Um I, I just appreciated that they they allowed the scene to play out as it was. I was surprised to see Lyda Hall uh, in this scene, and I don't want to get too much yeah. into comic book knowledge, but it it was surprising to then see that character reimagined. I think it fits well, Sean. I don't know how you feel about that introduction. Um. Well, I mean, overall, like it was a very sort of expository scene like that portion of it um and so you know i don't think we got as much maybe character insight as i would have liked to see but in terms of making the choice to change how light is introduced Mm -hmm. yeah it makes sense to me i mean the the comic book relies the comic book introduction of lyda um relies very much on Mm -hmm. the comic book medium and on comic book stories and history. And there's just, you know, there's not really any need to carry that over into the show. And so this was a smart way to have the character around and engaged without needing to bring up 50 years of -hmm. of superhero history. Right. So, so that all, that all worked for me pretty, pretty well, I would say. Yeah, I liked it too, you know, as someone, you know, who's also read the comic, um, you know, I, I thought it was a good use to you know, boil it down to essential characters when you can't, you know, when you can't do an episode per comic, 
when it doesn't make any sense. And I think obviously introducing her now lets us know of her importance. And so just thinking like what is going to become, you know, with this character and kind of um, this was something that they did a lot on like Game of Thrones on the TV show where they would. I forget the the podcast I listened to, Bald Move, they like talked about it, but essentially like stitching three or four characters together mm-hmm. into one character and having them do all the things that character did because it's just yeah. a lot easier than when you can just like, all oh, right, I could write for 700 words. It's like, no, 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 no. We got four <laughs> minutes. Like we got to go, you know? Yeah. And so I think this is, a, I think this is a very good move to, to introduce this character and give us, uh, you know, sometimes you need someone to exposit to and it's helpful to have you know um lighter there for for us as a as the audience surrogate yeah do, do i mean <laughs> does anybody need to know that lighter hall is the the daughter of earth <laughs> 2 wonder woman and steve trevor probably not <laughs> you never know we're there i feel like cool. <laughs> i wonder if that's canon i wonder if that's canon in this show like but like you know they're not going to ever talk about it but like she is. Well, you know, they did have some other DC properties in that in uh, the introductory scene with uh, with Rose, young Rose and young Jed. Mm-hmm. That kid is adorable, by the way. Yeah. yeah. In the room. Yeah. That kid yeah. Was That's part of so what made cute. it so heartbreaking. Um, yes. Just heartbreaking. Yes. So like, I want to go with you. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> but yeah, in that room they had like they had Bat- Batman and Wonder Woman dolls, and he had had a Static mm-hmm. Shock T-shirt, um, which I think was really cool uh, because that was that animated TV show was that that was the first like black superhero to have their own animated TV show. It's based ah. on the character Static, who was created by Dwayne McDuffie and uh, Dennis Cowan. Oh, very cool for milestone comics which was a imprint of dc that was run entirely by um black comics creators oh very Uh, cool wow i think yeah it was was really cool to see the first issue if you ever see it it's got the character you know static on there and he's wearing a uh malcolm x hat like like ball cap like spike lee like ball cap and uh with his copy saying like don't start none won't be none it's just like it was really cool at the time this like totally you know uh, um, uh, you know, a new culture of, of, of superhero awesome. comics. And then other than that, I mean, I just, I agree on the scene in, in the threshold and desires, mm. uh, uh, palace, I suppose. Um, that was great. I loved, I've, I always really enjoy the line where desires, like I have news and despairs is real news. Oh my the gosh, prodigal has yeah. returned. And it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. First of all, I love that just as a question because it's like, yeah, of course, like these members of the endless, these, you know, mortal beings that have been around so long have seen so much that like there's very little that they care about that doesn't affect them directly, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. very little that would count yeah. as real news, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So then here we see also our second mention of uh, of that, you know, one of the endless is mm-hmm. missing. Yeah. Um, so a little tantalizing breadcrumb there yeah. and then i loved desire's reaction just like the you know disparages the prodigal's return desire desires like what, what? Yeah. who him <laughs> no no you know it's just like just total dismissal yeah this is great yeah yeah scene two in the dreaming lucien is conducting a census of all entities that reside in the dreaming three are missing galt the corinthian and Fiddler's Green. 
Dream lets Lucien know that he is aware of the Vortex and has been watching her. Rose and Lyda arrive in England and are introduced to Unity Kincaid, Rose's great-grandmother, who was impacted by Dream's absence and suffered from a bout of sleeping sickness. Sean, what did you want to pull from? We kind of have two mini-scenes here. Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I agree that Dream's castle just looks great. I'm really happy he was able to you know, repair that and that we got to see it in all its glory, mm-hmm. you know, and, and see the throne room again. I think any, any time we visit the throne room, it's mm-hmm. amazing. It's beautiful to mm-hmm. look at. Um, I also I had to look up the word uh, Vavasur, which I had Bulbasaur? never heard before. <laughs> Bulbasaur, yes. Lucien is explaining which of, uh, which of the dreams are missing still. And, uh, Dream is surprised at that. That hearing Fiddler's Green is gone, and says, "You know, uh, he's Vavasor of his own domain, and and all is so reliable." So Vavasor apparently is a vassal owing allegiance to a powerful lord and having other vassals mm. under him. So, like in feudal law, you'd have some figure like a baron, and he'd have all these like land and holdings, and a Vavasor might control a portion of that land and then have his own tenants that are under him. So just to give you a little of the uh, little of the hierarchical hierarchical structure of the dreaming there, um, Fiddler's Green also itself is interesting in that it's a place and not a person. Yeah, right? I really uh, like that. It's it's such it's such a cool thing because why wouldn't you know? I love that there's sentient locations in in the dreaming, like the House of Mystery uh, is listed among the census, you know, and and Fiddler's Green obviously Fiddler's Green being this. There's a few different ideas of it, um, but in general, in this context, it's this sort of like paradise that sailors dream of, right? It's a lush green land. And then I think in in the Rose uh, in England portion, there was a moment there that I found a nice little character moment that's like, I don't think it's in the comic mm. book. Um, but it's when they're going up the stairs and the lawyer makes a comment on how young Rose looks. And she talks about how, you know, people always think she's younger than she is and always ask for ID. And she's like, it's annoying. You know, like, I just, I like that little bit of a, of a character moment um, like that. Just like revealing like some of her personality, you know, like it gives a little dimension and sort of shading to it when you're like, yeah, she's, she looks very young, but she's like a very capable person and like wants to be taken seriously by people. And this is a part of her character. So How it? interesting. I saw that entirely differently. I thought they were just making like a meta joke about how they use the same actor for the night for, you know, si- like they had a six year gap and they used the same actor. And I thought it was just like a meta joke about, oh, yes, I can play both a 16 year old and a 22 year old because of like how I look. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally what I thought it was. I thought it was a meta joke. I'm, Sean, I like your <laughs> Well, we'll never know, you know? So that's, that's one of the interesting things. And finally, yes, like Rose's face in the stars looked so cool. Mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm, so well done. Mm-hmm. Ashley, how about you? Yeah, just going back to the filler screen, I do love how we had like sort of 
physical entity, physical entity place. And we, this is another one of those moments where I was really glad they didn't dumb it down for, for viewers that they did just make it look like a physical location to kind of harness that, um, suspense to, for the big reveal as to what filler screen looks like, uh, as an entity. And I do love that playing with the stained glass continually. I like that that's been a continual theme and not just a one-off sort of lark. That's like a feature it's a manifestation of dream yes. and what he's thinking. Yeah, yeah I love cool. that that's consistent and that we keep getting that. I did also laugh about the being called younger, and I, I agree. I, I thought it was a great character moment because you see her sort of wanting to be taken seriously. She's got a big task ahead of her, so there are real stakes. Mm. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so then kind of wanting to make sure that she's taken seriously. And that's part of why... In her conversation with her great-grandmother, you know, her hearing Unity's story, and I've always kind of felt a little... I've I've been kind of torn about Unity's story just because it's a hard story with regard to the origin then of Rose's family, and that it... Rose's family wouldn't exist without what is frankly... and forgive me if this makes listeners uncomfortable rape and, and that that's always, I mean, treated very softly. Like it's never said, it's just, this happened. I was pregnant in my sleep and then it's just never touched. And I guess with the way that they're depicting Rose as, as a go-getter, very forthright, very blunt. I mean, even we'll see this in a later scene when she's talking to the social worker, um, just she really doesn't let anything go. So I'm surprised, especially for an updated sort of reimagining of these comics as a show that it's just not called out. Cause it feels like something Rose Walker would say is like, what happened? I'm so- I'm sorry. Um, I just feel like she would take that harder than she does in the moment. I do love that we have the moment of like hugging and, you know, her clearly not being upset with unity because that would, I think, be out of character for her. I think the the gentleness that she demonstrates to her new great-grandmother is wonderful and totally within her her bearing. But I, I, think, I think I would have expected her to be more appalled by that. Mm. You know, I, and I wonder if, you know, I think, Ashley, you do the most work with uh, folks that are part of Generation Z. Sure. And that's obviously what Rose is a part yeah. of. And I feel like the one thing that I know about that generation is I feel like unlike us as millennials, especially I think we're all old millennials from what I know. <laughs> um, like, I think all of us would be very quick to be like, wait, that happened to you? Like, what happened? Mm-hmm. Right. And we almost like force them to relive their trauma. Mm-hmm. And I do think that Generation Z is mo- like, we were we were the generation that really brought on these ideas of like dealing with and in you know thinking through and understanding your trauma and how it impacted you and kind of like how that built you in the person that you are but we're also very much like wearing it all the time and are always asking people about it and it feels to me that generation z is much more what isn't just going to put like your trauma on blast the after meeting you for 5 seconds hmm. now without getting too much more into it um have you in your, you deal a lot more. I mean, my, my work was primarily like it, it with high school students. When I was teaching them. So it was a little different, but I wasn't sure if that's how you have felt about it as well. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've certainly seen what you described when, with regard to their own personal trauma, you know, they'll, they'll mm. say something really low key and they go eh, like, 
that didn't happen. They'll just make these sort of either comments or jokes or noises to distract from what they've mm. sort of referenced or hinted at. When it comes mm. to, say, their friends um, mm. or people that they feel a connection towards, they'll be very quick to say, mm, that's not right. And they'll, they're, oh, I mean, okay. I mean, even sure. to the point where it's socially awkward sometimes, um, <laughs> where it's like, oh, there is a gentler way to go about that. I <laughs> do see your heart in this situation though. And I <laughs> applaud you for caring about justice. Um, so I hear what you're saying as far as like the differences mm. generally, generationally. Um, mm. And I, I would, I would wonder how much thought that specific conversation would have gone into the mm. creation and direction of this version of Rose Walker. Mm. But that's a good thought. I, I wouldn't have considered that. I was mm. more picking up like, okay, these are the beats where we've seen her really be assertive and call things mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. You know, this seems like a, an oddly sort of muted scene for something that was like really horrific. Mm. It almost has to be though, doesn't it? Like, how do you, I mean, how do you give that the room it almost requires without like derailing the whole progression of the episode? There's already sure. a lot of stuff happening. Like, you know, that could, that if you, if you explore that, then it becomes almost the, the center around which the whole story has to, has mm -hmm. to revolve. Um, just because it's a horrible yeah. thing, you know, I, I don't know what you can do other than just kind of, unfortunately, kind of just leap over it and maybe attribute it to the fact that Rose is getting a lot of information True. in this conversation. True. You know, she like, as far as she knew going into this room, all of her family was either mm -hmm. dead or missing. And now she's suddenly got a great grandmother. Uh, she's suddenly having weird dreams um, and she's suddenly, um, hearing this story about falling in love in a dream with a man with golden eyes and then being pregnant in real life and all this stuff. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm glad that they didn't go the HBO route with, yeah. with this, yeah. but. It'll be interesting to see if we get a flashback as we learn more about how did she get pregnant? Uh, let's take a look at our third scene. We are then introduced to three collectors, AKA serial killers who are having trouble booking a keynote speaker for their events coming up soon. They want to invite the Corinthian as they are all fans of his work, but they have no way of reaching him. So they decide to copy his killing style or collecting style in a hope to lure him out. At the same time, we see the Corinthian visiting Rose's apartment looking for her, and then learns about the copycat killings after sleeping with the worst or best house sitter in the world, Carl. Ashley, take us away on this scene. Gosh, I was terrified for Carl this entire encounter. Oh, I was like, yeah. Boy, run. What are you doing? I know. I loved it. They didn't just kill the gay guy yeah. after having yes. sex. I was like, amazing. I know. You don't have to just kill the gay guy after but, sex. But like, can you imagine what kind of heart attack he's gonna have when he like reads the news oh my god like, oh, oh my, my god. gosh like, the whole time <laughs> and truly once again incredibly charming villain which is deeply mm. uncomfortable same same with the the three that were 
uh, that are oh, planning yeah. the conference. I was not expecting that to be comedic. And the whole time I'm just like, I hate the, I should hate these characters, but the way they're mm. playing off of one another is so well done that I yeah, can't yeah. help but really love these characters, not love them, love them, but I'm certainly entertained by them in a way that I was not anticipating. I thought it'd they be like, like a planning committee the whole time. Yeah, they feel right. like a planning committee. I was like, you're it's a planning just- committee. Like, you sound like every planning committee ever. <laughs> right, right. And so I'm just like, what is it about diners that just brings out the murder in people? <laughs> <laughs> I was really, I mean, again, subject matter aside, really charmed by this set of scenes. So just chef's kiss. I'll have to say that the collector's planning committee didn't really land for me. And I guess... I guess I was never crazy about it. I like I, I suppose the Doll's House storyline is was always my least favorite of in the mm. in the series itself. Um not that I dislike it. Uh I think it's elevated a lot by Mike Dringenberg's artwork. Um but but with that element of removed, um I had a little bit of a harder time getting into that. And I think for me, and I see you know, I see what Ashley's saying and like it, it is it is funny in that way but like it also felt very much of its time when it was originally published like the late 80s um it seems kind of weird to have a serial killer convention in 2022 just like mm. there aren't that much that many serial killers anymore it's not in the um, zeitgeist like it would have been in the late 80s and early 90s for sure right that would have been like prime time for that sort of thing mm. and it's just it's right it's not in the Zeitgeist, and you know, well, they couldn't have made like, it a proud like boy convention. Oh gosh, that's the but, ima- but uh, like, like, imagine, like, what do you pick? Like, what do you pick that's in the Zeitgeist? Yeah. You know, it well, has to be something I mean, like this a, is the age of yeah. the mass shooter, right? I don't well, know, yeah. I mean, because I feel like there's there's a range to how we can express ourselves to one another, like, there's socially acceptable ways to, to express yourself, and there's socially unacceptable ways to do that, and it sort of changes over time, and like. For example, to express, you know, respect for someone years ago, you would have, you know, probably used their title and surname. I'd be like Mr. Childers or something like that. And you wouldn't really do that anymore. You'd use their first name, communicate respect in some other way. Um, so I just feel like the the means of expressing antisocial urges uh, also follow shifting patterns. And it's really not, it's not really how those antisocial urges are expressed that much anymore. This is really like you know, the age of the mass shooter. And serial killers just seem a little quaint, I guess. Yes, but like think of how many how many like murder podcasts there are unpacking a mm. lot of serial killer historic murder mm. type. I mean, my favorite murder even even plays on that trope with regard to only murders in the building. <laughs> I, I just I don't know. I feel like maybe it's not completely worked mm. its way out. Good yeah, counterpoint. Yeah, I, I award you I, one I point. I can see that. <laughs> oh, thank you. I can see that. But we have also have a better understanding of, like, real-life murderers now, mm. you know, and the isolation in which they live most of their lives and, like, the trauma mm. they experience that tend to be common in, in sort of shaping this. And I think that's changed a little bit how we depict them mm. in our fiction. So doing mm. it this way where they're a little bit sort of bubbly and all, like, working together and all that, it just felt a little anachronistic to me, I guess. <laughs> okay. But also, um, 
just note for anyone that it might be house sitting for me in the future, like, please don't bring in strangers and have sex with them in my home. Like, I mean, maybe just like not on my bed, mm. you know, like. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that seemed rude. Yeah, it's just, just. Put that in know, the Google I, Notes I, doc that you share with people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I liked that, uh, you know, it, it, was, it seemed. It is surprising, though. Like, why didn't the Corinthian uh, kill Carl, right, Carl? Like, why not? It's cool that it subverts your expectations because you're clearly thinking it's leading towards that, but to what end? Hmm. Open question. Open question. Well, speaking of that, I had... Oh. Did you hear that? I got... I'm going to go check the door. Uh, I'll be right back. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Oh man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it, pause it, turn off the TV. Do, do you Shh, think she's gone? make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh well. <sighs> Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. All right, we're back for scene number four. This will be our shortest scene, but it has a lot going on. Back in England, the Hecate visit Rose and warn her to beware of dreams and houses. Unfortunately, Rose doesn't ask them the right questions. So they are unable to give her warnings about Morpheus and the Corinthian. Lyda finds her in a broom closet, and they then go back to have tea with Unity. Unity then hires Rose to find Jed and gives her a gold amulet. Sean. Very impactful, important scene here. Okay, well, I guess my the first thing I want to talk about is a question that I genuinely don't know the answer to. Now, it's always really cool to see the fates, as we've mm. discussed uh, on this show several times. Uh, it's always great and interesting and troublesome when they show up. But I was really curious about the background of this scene where they appear, I couldn't find anything on it. But I was wondering if either of you happen to know anything because it's like this beautiful, like large hall. And then they're standing in front of a column directly in front of a painting. And I'm sure if I knew what those were, you'd be like, oh, that's cool that they thought of that. But I have no idea what it is. Mm. No, it, it, admittedly at this point, I've come up empty handed myself. I was trying to find it and couldn't, couldn't find any writing on it and i didn't recognize the style either i just thought maybe they were reusing the abbey in westminster from earlier i i'm bad at all of this so <laughs> <laughs> i especially want to know what that painting was because they were standing mm. like mm -hmm. directly in front of it mm. it's got to have um sort of some 
significance there. I really liked that they weren't moving. They weren't switching places because they came to her. I really liked that. Uh, Or at least that's why I thought like the fates show up in the comic Lucifer um, and deal with her with their, with one of their granddaughters. And they also don't switch places because they're always like, I don't know because the familial bond, I don't know. It it was just really interesting that they didn't move. And every other time we've seen them move. But sorry, Sean, I interrupted. Oh, no, that's fine. Uh, Because it really just was like the thing that was been um, sort of like bugging me the most trying to figure this out. I wonder, yeah, I also wonder if that not moving was deliberate uh, because, you know, in the the comic version, uh, Rose can can't really see them clearly and Mm -hmm. questions she's uncertain about how many of them there are like it appears Mm. to be one voice at times it appears to be multiple voices at Mm. times you know Mm. so i think in the comic version the implication there is that they are doing their switchy places thing Mm. the the way i had interpreted it because they call her by three different names as well and then they they refer to her as sister and and are very like you kind of described Ben is like familial with her almost like she she is a step ahead of other characters mm-hmm. that they've appeared in mm-hmm. front of mm-hmm. there's some sort of bond or connection between them whether it's through gender or her, her the state as the state of a vortex or what I'm not mm-hmm. sure but it just felt like there was like a, a more direct connection yes. between them yes and that that was what was communicated as opposed to we are going to be strange to the people that we're strange to mm. and, and owe us mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. boon or something. Uh, whereas, like you said, they were going to her because they knew something and wanted to help, but are limited by their own rules. And that's what was interesting to me is the fact that we saw their limitation of power based that's self-imposed in right. a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It was really neat. Right. To, I mean, cause I, when I rewatched it, you can see that Rose asked three questions. Yeah, like you can see her do it. You're like, no, 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 like, because her first <laughs> statement to them was, "How do you know my name? Who are you?" And it's just like, oh, like that's two gone right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. I like that they gave her a little like uh, Hecate sneak though. Like they worked in yeah. some cryptic, yeah, the kind of cryptic knowledge that they deliver. Anyway, like, come on, it's not like they were going to give her straight up answers, right? Like, they don't do that. But they were right, able to right, work in right. what they needed to work in there. Yeah, I think this was just, this might have been my favorite scene from the episode. Mm. Um, I like that it paid homage to the comic by having her be in a broom closet. Mm-hmm. You know, I really enjoyed that. Um, and and like I said, I was just, I was, I'm trying to put the best way to put it, like, enjoys the wrong word, but I just really enjoyed that we saw all of them clearly not moving and they're just in a very different posture than every other time we've seen them. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that's important because that was a choice. <laughs> I also like that they, that they included the line, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to meet us as the kindly ones, mm. right? Just, just oh, yeah. adding mm-hmm. in that little layer of, you know, there's some extremely hostile configuration of mm-hmm. the fates uh, mm-hmm. that would be trouble for anyone who ran into them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, even blocking-wise, it's different because when they encounter Dream and, you know, when they encounter John D as well, they're 
in that triangle formation where one of them is always leading and is sort of like directly mm. combative mm. towards the subject. Mm. Whereas in this case, Maiden and Rose are opposite one another. And then the mother and the crone are sort of like flanking each of them. Mm. If you were like aerial view, it'd be balanced mm. Mm. in a way that we won't, we haven't seen when they've encountered other characters, which I think is a really excellent, subtle form of blocking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ashley, anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted up a lot of this scene? Um, I just, I liked the fact that it was still in a broom closet <laughs> of all places and the way that um, we see Rose against try to find some sort of logic to what she's mm. experiencing and just chalking it up to jet lag, which is, I think, what we would all do mm-hmm. if we had some sort of really bizarre encounter like that. And uh, and I like the look exchanged between Lyda and Rose when Unity gives her the amulet and, again, has a very human moment of, wow, what a coincidence. Sort of nothing built, nothing built up too hokey. It just feels like a very human, like, I don't know how to explain this. How strange. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Thanks for the gift. Um, I, again, I just felt like it was subtle acting that, that was carried well. Yeah, I like Which, I like Unity. She's she there. She does a good job of 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 kind of mm-hmm. conveying that. Like she doesn't have, you know, a ton to work with. She's kind of driving the plot forward for the most part. But in her bearing, mm-hmm. in her cadence, she she seems to inhabit a character. Yes. Yeah. She's believable. Mm-hmm. I feel like that character would have been really easy to just sort of like just shuffle off to the side mm-hmm. as a character. But she she feels like a fully fleshed yep. out person. All right, let's take a look at scene five. In the dreaming, Lucien and Matthew are researching Rose so that he can spy on Rose when we are finally introduced to personal favorite Merv the Pumpkin. Hell yeah. Matthew leaves the dreaming (laughs) to go complete his task by following Rose to Cape Kennedy, Florida, which is where she grew up and where she is restarting the search for her brother. Rose and Lyda will be staring at a bed and breakfast with a host of lively and unique characters who we meet through the rest of the episode. Rose then visits with the adoption agency to try and learn more about her brother. While she doesn't learn any specifics, she does now know that he is staying with friends of her father's and seems to feel a bit more relieved, though not wholly so. Then the entire house goes out to see Hal, the owner of the B&B's drag show. Rose takes the call out back and is almost mugged until she fights off one of the intruders, and we are introduced to Gilbert, who also lives in the bed and breakfast. Ashley, we have the main driving action here of Rose going to Florida. Yeah, this is where what I'm talking about with regard to how driven... Rose is Mm. and how we see this you know if I were trying to get information out of somebody especially after you've got the added pressure of a new family member hiring you and paying you to get this information I think I would have personally taken a much gentler touch to try to wheedle this information out which is why I think Rose is such a standout character mm. because she doesn't pull punches <laughs> and she is re I mean, again, the stakes are so high for her. She's, I, I think this is the first time we see her scared because of how resistant people are 
to help it. Mm. Um, and so I think that scene and getting, even though it was exposition, getting that information was well delivered in a way that was still engaging uh, and, and heartbreaking. Because uh, the whole time you just wanted to see her succeed, and she's just hitting roadblock, mm-hmm. uh, roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Absolutely, I do love the introduction to <laughs> the bed and breakfast oh, yeah. and meeting Hal for the first time. Yeah. Hal is such a beloved character, and I was really excited. I didn't know this; I somehow missed this, but I didn't realize John Cameron Mitchell was going to be playing mm-hmm. Hal. So then, when they step out of the house. I was like, shrill boss. And Helm's like, I have no clue what you're referring to. And I was like, I'll explain later. This is a good thing though. <laughs> so um, so I just, I, I really love their friendship. I love the introduction of Barbie and Ken, though Ken did, I was expecting Ken to be a little less crunchy and a little more cut and dry, a little straight, a little more straight laced. Mm. So I thought that was kind of an interesting introduction. Zelda and Chantal, was also interesting. They were probably the only characters that I felt this episode were a little too close to the source material in the sense of style. Like I, and more delivery, not so much costume and mm. costuming. I think it would have been hard to adapt mm. into a modern spider stuffing goth focus, but, um, and more goth thick than goth. Yeah, th- no, like, fair enough. Got yeah. thick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I still think that they're, you know, really oddly endearing characters. Mm. So just all those introductions are just kind of warm. I like the fact that we get this sort of found family scenario with all of them. And I, I was just more watching Light of the whole time being like, you're kind of the most white bread of all of these people. How are you encountering (laughs) this house? Um, And so the fact that she takes it all in stride is a testament to why her and Rose are friends at all. Um, So it was, it's just, it was kind of like taking it all in and being like, do I actually vibe with this? Do I actually believe all of these people would be staying in this place all together? Yeah, I guess I do. Especially by the time they're ready to go out at night. And I was like, all right. These people are all right. It's Florida. So it was. Know, so. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's been a while since I've been there, but it yeah. is. It's Florida. So what am I, who am I to say? Sean? <laughs> yeah, I, so this is one of, so some, you know, like I was saying earlier, some of the problems I had with the episode were when it felt very kind of over the top and cartoony to me. I did not find that to be the case with the introduction of the, at the, B&B or any of that. I felt like it was weird and quirky in a way that suited the tone uh, Mm. of the show really well. Um, All the characters' introductions there as well as, you know, the the first time I saw it, I didn't even, I wasn't thinking John Cameron Mitchell. So the first time I watched it through, I was like, wow, they're really showing like this whole musical number, right? And then after I realized, I was like, you know what? (laughs) Like, (laughs) <laughs> Why would you not want to sit through John Cameron Mitchell doing Sondheim? Like, you just enjoy it. Right. Like, show the whole thing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so so I, I came around to that, and I dug it. Um, I also have to shout out uh, Mark Hamill here again. It's just, like, such a perfect spot-on, you know, expression of how that character would sound when I read the book. Like, just proving, mm. like, Mark Hamill, voiceover-wise... 
you know, he's the goat, honestly. Uh, <laughs> like this is a guy that, you know, and, and my childhood gave life to the Joker, right? Like that's mm-hmm. Mark Hamill's right. Joker, right. The Batman, right. the animated series is just what I, that's all that'll always be, you know, the character of the Joker to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really great to see him, uh, be a part here. Also loved seeing Stephen Fry as Gilbert. Uh, I, you know, I would have liked maybe a little, less of a corny way for them to meet. I think they could have done something different there. Uh, the back alley mugging is just like so lame to me. I don't know. Um, See, it's funny. Cause when, when I first watched that, that scene, I had pieced it together with the, the people trying to organize the conference. And for some reason I was like, Oh, just all the murders are out tonight. Yeah. Okay, they're they're plucking out eyeballs too. That's why they've got knives. That's how I reasoned it for myself. <laughs> no, I they struck me as like like West Side Story like gang members, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, and I like that they had uh, Gilbert managed to work in the fact that he loves reading uh, Chesterton like right away, which I thought was fun. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't want to get too ahead of the show, so for now I'll just say that that reference was not coincidental. Uh, mm. I was also just, like, you know, reading a bit about Chesterton before this. Um, he's described as, I just have to give you this little bit of Chesterton, uh, a large man standing six feet four inches and weighing around uh, uh, 20 stone six pounds, or 286 pounds, um, he usually wore a cape and a crumpled hat with a sword stick in hand and a cigar hanging out of his mouth. And he had a tendency to forget where he was supposed to be going and miss the train that was supposed to take him there. So it's, uh, on several occasions, he'd send a telegram to his wife from an incorrect location and he'd write something like, I'm in Market Harborough, where ought I to be? And she would just reply, <laughs> home, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I won't say anything more about Gilbert or Chesterton for now, but I'm familiar with his work. I've read some of like the Father Brown stuff that he's written. Chesterton is an extremely prolific writer, um, and he's of interest and, and influenced many of the writers that I enjoy. So like mm. Gaiman, like Jorge Luis Borges, which I mentioned on our last um, comic episode, and uh, Slavoj Žižek, also mm. really into Chesterton. Not shocking. <laughs> All right, let's bring it home. Back with our event planners, the Corinthian has found them and decides to take them up on their offer to be their keynote speaker instead of killing them. Back in the Dreaming, Morpheus and Lucian realize that Jed has somehow become severed from the Dreaming and that the last nightmare that visited him before that was Galt. And Rose is there in the Dreaming listening to the two of them talk and ask them what they know about her brother. Back in Florida, we see a slightly older Jed trying to run away from home before his adoptive father catches up with him. Sadly, he doesn't get away, and his uncle makes him ride home in the trunk as he pumps a shotgun, and the credits roll on the episode. Sean, what do you want to pull out of this first part okay well just uh, how are these serial killers not getting caught they're just sitting there with multiple sets of eyeballs on the table of this diner that they're in <laughs> it's halloween like, 
It's Halloween. <laughs> it's just Halloween. I, yes, okay. I'll, I, because I happen to watch the episode right around Halloween, I'll give yeah. them the That's what I'm saying. It's Halloween that. right now in real life yeah. or us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we'll take that. Um, yeah, I I had a hard time connecting with the, the Jed scene. It felt... Very, it felt very sort of black and white to me. It felt very flat. Um, there wasn't the sort of complexity that I that I hope for and value in the show, and there wasn't the the subtlety that is normally there. Like when they use allusions, when they use symbols, when they're referencing things, there the show is can be very subtle. So it's jarring to me when the the character work kind of you know beats you over the head with the emotions that it attempts to invoke and so that's why that that kind of didn't work for me there i am very very intrigued to find out more about this new galt character and the you know the reasoning behind severing jed from the dreaming where this character is now whether it's uh, it's you know Barnaby or I mean because we know it's a it's a shape changer right like that much has been Mm -hmm. revealed to us so it's really exciting to be kind of going into the unknown there stuff that we have no way of knowing even having read the book I do I will miss Brute and Glob who presumably have been replaced by Galt Mm -hmm. but you know I can understand why they why they did it. Brute and Glob actually characters from the from the nineteen seventies Sandman comic book by Jack Kirby. Unsurprising. <laughs> Ashley, how about you? Yeah, I I too had the question: How are these three murderers not being caught in the middle of this restaurant? Uh, be, not not just because three people are now missing in a very short period of time, but also because they have that really bright light above their table and do just have those eyeballs hanging out in the middle of their table. Has no one asked them if they want more drinks? Has no one asked <laughs> if they want their bill? Like, well, the waiter's like, gone, right? So, like... <laughs> well, sure, but, like, literally, I'm sure, certainly, somebody would walk past <laughs> at some point. Because um, they're not even, like, necessarily all the way in the back. They're kind of in the middle <laughs> of things. So it just cracked me up. Um, and I, I do like how like low key annoyed the Corinthian is with them. Like, Oh gosh, my fans, I gotta go, you know, (laughs) sign some knives or something. I don't know. Like just, he just seems so tired. Um, it's that sort of post coital, like, uh, you know, he's just kind of chilling, like probably he hasn't had a cigarette right if he hadn't if he hadn't just met someone new uh, maybe he would have killed them already right right yeah exactly he's got a lot on his plate how can he fit in a conference <laughs> but he's going to and so i just i found his his reaction to them and how much they're fawning over him very funny um and uh, and yeah i actually the the scene with jed and uncle barnaby and then I forget the aunt's name. Clarice, that didn't fall. Yeah. Clarice, mm-hmm. thank you. Uh, it didn't fall flat for me. It made me deeply anxious. Um, but not even so much because Jed seems like a very capable young kid for what he's experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like for him to have gotten as far as he did with then seeing how his foster parent is treating him. He, he must have been really inventive to get out of whatever that situation is if he is treated as, as he is. Yep. Uh, so 
what made me deeply anxious, frankly, was how ineffectual the aunt was and her reaction to what I'm assuming is her brother. Because as soon as Jed says, we got to get out of here, you know, he's doing all this stuff. She has this this reaction of what I interpreted as recognition, but denial. And then when Barnaby shows up or yeah, um, then this, again, what I interpreted to be recognition and then fear as one who might have also had been at the hand of his abusive oh, interesting. posture. So I thought they were married. I had taken, yeah, I had taken that they were, were they? married. Well, I can't, I can't tell based off of the yeah. name. Regardless, yeah. I just feel like that is a contentious yes. relationship. Yeah. When they're called aunt and uncle in this, the way things are being reinterpreted, I couldn't yeah, quite for tell. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but regardless, there's some fear there that I don't remember that being in the relationship of the comic. And correct me if I'm wrong, if I might be misremembering. They're a uh, I thought, foster mother or an adoptive mother, father. They're a husband, wife. Right. But they're both abusive. Yeah. Yes. Him, correct? Yes. In the comic. Yes. Okay. So that's what I was remembering. So then this dynamic feel, felt new yeah. to me um, with regard to how it was being depicted. So that, that, anxiety and the the frustration of this kid who goes to a resource that should be protecting mm-hmm. him and then not getting that protection mm-hmm. was so frustrating. Yep. And yep. in fact, uh, she, so in that case, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say when, when Jed does, you know, run up to, I agree that there's that moment of recognition and denial. And I, I did like how it was expressed by like her immediate response was what did you do? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, Right. It's, it's it's like, well, of course, exactly. this person wouldn't, you know, if there's some, if he's doing some act of violence, well, we must have done something to deserve mm-hmm. that. What was it? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so in in that case, while the scene wasn't enjoyable, it was effective to, to me in communicating now another level or layer of stakes added to finding Jed. And then however Galt is involved in that, whether Galt has shapeshifted into Barnaby or has shapeshifted into some other character we'll meet or somehow Clarice, that would be mm. terrifying. Um, you know, that mm-hmm. I'm interested to, to see. Uh, because again, you know, Jed's not gone through nothing. He's been through mm-hmm. a, a lot, just being through the foster system. Also, you know, having been torn from his mother and sister. So for him to still be fighting, I think, is a real testament to that character. And I'm looking forward to seeing that character de- to develop further. On a slightly lighter note, how about the look that the Corinthian gives the good doctor, who is the female collector, as he like puts his arm kind of like on the back of the booth? And just like the uh-huh. look he gives her and the look she gives him. I'm just like, oh, my God, like to have someone look at you like that. And <laughs> I feel like in her mind, she's like, whatever he wants me to do, I would do just like whatever he's. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Does not I mean? Yeah. You're already starstruck. But now he is just uh-huh. like, I think that's what they talk about a lot. Like people that are highly narcissistic and like that level of charisma, like when they're pointing it at you, it is unreal when they are directing that energy at you. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, I want just mm-hmm. whatever I can do to get this energy. I, I want it. And I felt like just in a momentary glance between the two of them, <clears throat> I got all of that. And I really liked it. 
And the fact that he's able to communicate that so well with the dark glasses, you know, like acting relies so much on communicating things with the eyes. And the fact that he's able to still get all of that across successfully is amazing. It's a lot like uh, Pablo Pascal in The Mandalorian, like with a helmet on, like acted with a helmet on and showed emotion. And it was just like, how are you doing this? Like, we need to see your face Mm -hmm. for emotion. It's like, no, just like these slight little movements. Can, yeah, I, I, that was without, you know, getting into a Mandalorian tangent. That was some of the most spectacular <laughs> acting that I have seen in a television show in a very long time with with that limitation of, right, we can't see your face ever. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, I wanted to report back from the person who was knocking on my door. It was just a UPS man. But he actually said he had to come right back uh, for me to sign something. So I actually got to go back upstairs, but I'll be right back. And with that, we're wrapping. Ashley, you're first. Any final lingering thought that you want to make sure that we definitely talk about? Yeah, I just, I think the line that Desire says in their scene, dreams are merely echoes of desire and despair, I th- I'm interested to see how that golden thread plays mm. out in these next few episodes and not only how it affects the family dynamic of the endless, but how then it trickles down into the mortal realm as, as I'll refer to it. Um, and, and I'm going to be sort of probably queuing myself up to focus on how that sort of bubbles to the surface in the writing in the future. That was interesting because I don't think, I think that was not a line that came from the comic as far as I'm aware. And I think it does add Mm -hmm. some, uh, you know, it gives a little weight to uh, Desire's motivations Mm. that never really Mm -hmm. appear in the Mm. comic, honestly. Like, it's just sort of Desire doing bad stuff, you know, because they're bad uh, or troublesome anyway. Mm. Um Whereas here you see some, you, you you know, you're giving a name to the source of their resentment a little bit. And that's, that's, that was a, a nice addition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it provides some ontological stakes that don't exist and really deepens two characters that we only have so much material for. So the fact that we're taking them more seriously, I really enjoy. Sean, how about you? Uh, for me, just a, uh, a little thing that I failed to mention earlier, it was that another of the character moments that I appreciated, um, so I'm trying to call them out where I, where I find them, um, since there was so much that I felt was maybe like not so great in this episode. Another bit of the character moments that I enjoyed was Lyda on the plane mm. talking mm-hmm. to... Hector, her dead husband. for sure. So just real quick aside, my grandma, as she, you know, she was in her 90s. She's passed away now. But I I remember once her looking at pictures and seeing a picture of my grandpa and just being like, oh, that's my dead husband, which is just (laughs) a really funny way of how she's categorized that. Um, but that's what that uh, me saying that just made me think of, but, but uh, yeah, I, I appreciated that moment where Lyda, you know, uh, she's sort of having a dream of her deceased husband, Hector, he's sitting next to her and asks if she's okay. And she's like, well, probably not. I'm instead of working, I'm on a plane to England talking to my dead husband, you know? So getting that little hint of how 
tumultuous her character is or will be just like kind of beneath the surface there there's not much room for it on in these episodes there's already so much in there but but giving a little hint of that i appreciate it and i'm also really interested to see if hector continues to be worked into the Mm. show over the next couple episodes Uh absolutely on this episode it seemed like we all three enjoyed it ashley and i seem to enjoy it more sean had a few quibbles primarily around maybe trying to stay a little too true to the original comic, especially in some of the uh, language choices. But we all really thought that the uh, introduction of Rose Walker and her story were very grounded, very structured, gave us a clear um, dairy protagonist that is going to help drive action forward being able to get introduced to a whole new cast of characters, which on an 11 episode television show, you very rarely in episode seven would introduce a whole slate of new characters. And I think they did a really nice job of showing us some individual uniqueness of everyone, but without belaboring the point. And I don't need the Ken and Barbie backstory right now. Like it's okay. And I think they made the right editorial decision to be like, Hey, these people live here. They're all unique. You'll learn some things, but it's it's not a huge deal if you don't know exactly what everything going on is. Um, and I thought that, you know, we all kind of pulled away from this episode just really excited to see what these next, really, I guess, 8, 9, and 10 are going to wrap up this story. Uh, and then 11 is kind of like an offshoot. So we have three episodes left to kind of see how they're going to land this plane. And while we saw at least one dollhouse, I definitely think there were allusions to many more throughout the episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.